This recording has been produced by Christchurch, Jerusalem. For more information, visit us at cmj-israel.org. All right, so dearly beloved, it, it's really good to be um, I don't know, back in the saddle, I guess. Uh, we're going to be studying together the book of Acts. And for those who have been here before or have studied with me before, know that, or hope you know that, I don't like doing it by myself. Okay? The, the text is open to all of us. We all have the Bible in front of us. And it doesn't really matter what version or language of it. We can all bring something to the table. And when we come to a Bible study, even the guy who's leading it needs to be prepared to learn something. And uh, so I also have a pen. And if someone makes a really good comment, trust me, I will write it down and keep it and regurgitate it next time I study the book. Uh, and that's how we all, we all learn. I'm not doing this by myself either. My co-conspirator in crime. Um, <laughs> Neville Mapman Jones, <laughs> yes, is uh, yeah, which is one of those obscure superheroes in the DC universe, uh, is is also going to uh, uh, help as well as you guys, and we're going to be looking at the Acts of the Holy Spirit. That is in the Book of Acts, but focusing on um, the references to and about the Holy Spirit. And before we uh, begin. Uh, the time on the tradition in Christianity is we pray. pray. Right. Even though there is no command in the Bible to pray, right. but we all know it is a very good thing to do, yes? Yes. And so it is our tradition, and we will honor the tradition that when coming before God's word, we get in an attitude of prayer and pray. Can I have a volunteer lead us in our prayers? Okay. Okay. Father, thank you for this time set aside to study your word, Lord, to receive from your Holy Spirit. So, Father, we pray that you would honor us by your presence and guide our understanding to see wonderful things out of your word. Amen. Amen. All right, so to begin, the title of the series, Acts of the Holy Spirit, because as probably most of us have, have become aware, the book has previously been known by its more popular title, Acts of the Apostles. Mm -hmm. Except that the apostles aren't actually the central characters. Isn't that actually interesting? Yes. Jesus spends his entire ministry in the Gospels hanging around with 12 individuals, which then subsequently disappear from history. Don't you find that interesting? Jesus spends... However long, I reckon it was probably up to about seven, with Peter and James and Bartholomew and Matthew, and uh, spends all this time correcting them, appears to them at the end. And then when you get to the book of Acts, they're in it for a little bit. <coughs> and then we switch over to Paul, who then proceeds to write a large proportion of the New Testament. Um, that's in our tradition, uh, following the Western, Western Protestant tradition. Other traditions have more information. They kind of kept some of the writings of these other guys and the uh, acts of what they did. So the actual book of the, of the Acts uh, mentions the Holy Spirit more times than any other book in the entire Bible. So it is the, whole, the word Holy Spirit is mentioned 40 times in, in this book. 
It's mentioned 13 by Luke. So combined, Luke Acts contributes 53 mentions of the Holy Spirit where you combine everybody else in the entire uh, New Testament. <coughs> they don't even equal him. So the rest of the Gospels mention the Holy Spirit infrequently. All of Paul put together only equals 16. He, don't, he only just manages to beat Luke. Hebrews has a 5. Peter not so much. In Revelation, 0. Okay, once you get to Revelation, the terms will be Spirit of, not the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Truth. The seven-fold Spirit. The, these kinds of things. But the actual term, Holy Spirit is a very key term for the, the Acts, uh, the book of Acts. And so I thought what we would do as a study by the end of tonight, we would ask ourselves, what do we think the Holy Spirit does? Without looking anything up, just if someone sat down and asked you over a cup of coffee, what does the Holy Spirit do? What would be our response? So then we should... Make a note of that, write it down as a group, and then as we study the book of Acts, and whenever we come to the term the Holy Spirit, we'll stop and we'll pay real close attention in context and see actually what he's doing, and we'll write that down. And at the end of the book of Acts, we'll look at that list and compare it to the list we originally thought and see if they were close or, or, or not so much. And hopefully along the way we'll be surprised at, uh, at what the Holy Spirit does and continues to do. The book of Acts, in terms of its genre, is sacred history. Anyone know what that means? I know that English might not be everybody's major tongue. Anyone know what a genre is? Any English teachers here at all? <laughs> a type of writing. Right? And so the book of Acts, in terms of its genre, its style of writing, is sacred history. And we do not read sacred history the same way we read a gospel. Okay? You don't read a fictional book the same way as you do a non-fictional one. Or poetry or song material. We read them differently. What do I mean by that as an example? Um, the, what is the book of Acts? What is its story? What does it like to tell us? Okay, that's one thing. What the Holy Spirit did? The, the history of the early church. History of the early church. Yes. Doing what? Okay, missionary work? But just developing. Developing, the, whole, the, the early church developing. Expanding. Expanding. In which direction does the book of Acts take us? West. Yes. The book of Acts is the sacred history of the gospel going west. Where does the, where does the story end up? Rome, Rome. Rome. So it's going to tell us how the gospel gets to Rome. Does the book of Acts tell us how the gospel went north? No. The, gospel, the book of Acts does not tell us how the gospel went south. And it certainly it doesn't tell us... Sorry? It hints at it. It hints at it. And we'll talk about that in chapter 8 when we get yeah. to the Ethiopian eunuch. And ask, what is the story doing here? 
which is a good question to ask. And it certainly doesn't tell us how the gospel got to India. But if I ask everyone here, who brought the gospel to India, you'd all say, Thomas. How do you know that? This doesn't tell us. <laughs> That's not a good answer, right? <laughs> but it's true, right? We all, we all have, we have knowledge of, of other traditions and they'll say, Saint so-and-so took the gospel here and so-and-so did this and he was martyred here and he fought the demons and did all kinds of wonderful things. But our text, our piece of sacred history isn't concerned about how the gospel gets to India. Because if it was, you'd have it. So what that means is, when the early missionaries show up in India and say, I've got a great story about a guy called Paul taking the gospel to Rome, guess what they said? Who's Paul? Where's Rome? Okay, what do I care? Okay, I want to know about Thomas. I want to know about his deeds. Give me his teachings and, and tell me how he died and, 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 uh, so I can be encouraged. So their book of Acts is going to look a little different, isn't it? And so, so we read sacred history little differently than we do gospels. <coughs> Can I ask, um, what, um, what traditions are we talking about? And we have this extra information. Okay, so if we talked to the Indians, like we had a Christian from India, and we asked him, um, tell me about the history of the church in India. He won't go back and say, well, in the beginning, um, there was this guy called Paul, and he took the gospel to us. I mean, are, we, are you saying that their Bible is different? In... The Book of Acts. Are they, uh, is there more information in that? I'm going to say yes and no. What am I going to say? I'm going to say that every denomination has a different Bible. So our brothers right next door are the Armenians, the Armenian Orthodox. The Armenians became believers in Yeshua and Jesus in the year apparently somewhere between 271 and 306 depending on there's lots of different dates where they all have a start date but basically they become believers in Jesus a whole generation before it becomes legal that's incredible yes it's fantastic so they are the first nation to embrace Christianity their Bible has over 80 books in it and they have books that nobody else has they have a book called the life of Adam and Eve which if you ever wanted to know what Adam and Eve did after they left the garden, and I know you do, then um, actually you can just read it online. But they, that's in their Bible. They'll, they'll tell you what he did. And uh, they have a book called The Testament of the Twelve Patriarchs. So every single tribe has his own book. There is the book of Naphtali, the book of Issachar, the book of Judah, the book of Levi. And, they, and that's preserved just by them. And, uh, and, and, and some others, but they are the two big ones. Uh, going to the, on the other side of us are the Egyptian Coptics, who are a very large denomination in the Middle East. And their Bible it has some different books in it. It's got all of ours, and it has some extra ones. Um, the Ethiopians have, I think, the second largest canon. Is there any Russians here? Russian Orthodoxy has the, uh, the biggest. Uh, for in, in terms of world history, um, when everybody else was collapsing under the rule of Islam or just disintegrating under the Gothic invasion, uh, the Orthodox people, the Slavic Orthodoxy, uh, ended up 
having a language called Old Church Slavonic and they went out to preserve every single piece of sacred writing they could find. So the, the, they have the largest collection of religious, religious books. Uh, unfortunately, no one actually speaks Old Church Slavonic anymore. So we have them, but we have no ability to... No, they still speak in Orthodox Church. In church, yes. Then no one understands. The priest gets up and he reads and everyone's like, what is he saying? Okay. Um, but the actual... So we have all these books and the only people who can read them are Russian, Russian monks. Uh, which is kind of cool. So, to answer your question, they do have different versions, yes. And they have slight variants. And there's even variants of, the, of our Book of Acts, which we'll talk about that in very soon. Okay. Um, but still we have to examine them to see if it's rubbish or it's something that is according to that scripture. <coughs> sure. That when we would do so from our tradition. So, for example, if I took the life of Adam and Eve and sat down and read it, and I went, oh, this is a load of rubbish, but an Armenian priest who loves Jesus, he'll tell me that that's not true. So at some stage, you do have to say, uh, and, and uh, which books are supposed to be in your Bible, it all becomes quite um, debatable. And so everyone will remember my, my famous line is, your faith is not in your Bible. What's your faith in? resurrected Jesus that's right Jesus has to rise from the dead so even if somebody came in today and took all of our Bibles and we weren't allowed to have one could you believe in Jesus yes could you preach Jesus yes yes so would the church grow yes so how important is your Bible it's important it's very important but it is not God and an Armenian if someone came along and took all their Bibles and you ask that Armenian guy, Could you, do you believe in Jesus? He'll still say yes. You're going to preach him? Yes. And so uh, I think maybe, maybe that's probably the best thing. Maybe we should get rid of them all and see what happens. <laughs> I'll edit that out in a second. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, all right, so uh, another, some examples of actually what a sacred history means and the way we don't read it the same as a gospel. Okay. Um, in the beginning of Acts, how do we appoint leaders, new leadership? By drawing lots. We draw lots. Does anyone know a denomination that actually does that today? Let's choose a new pope. Let's choose a new priest for Christ Church. We'd like a new teacher for the Anglican school. Well, everyone just, you know, longest, longest wins. No one does that. We actually want to know your qualifications. We want to know your experience. But it is in the Bible. And despite the fact that it is in the Bible, we don't do it. And so we read sacred history differently. Now imagine if Jesus had told you that's how you choose um, leadership. Oh Lord, we'd like to uh, understand the nature of church leadership. Could you please uh, uh, give us a passage or a pasuk? Well, just cast lots. Okay, Lord. And that's what we would do. But uh, So we read, we read it slightly differently. Um, another example would be, uh, what is the catalyst for church expansion? Persecution. Persecution. <laughs> Martyrdom. Okay. So, but you never hear that as a, uh, as, a, as a process for evangelism. I'm going to go to a country and get martyred. 
Why? Because that's what happened to Stephen and it exploded the church. Okay, great stuff, Aaron. Go for it. But that's not the tactic, is it? But that's the example that we find in sacred history. So we read sacred history a little differently than we do, do other texts. We don't read them the same way as epistles or gospels. Okay, and Revelation, well, that's just very different as well. Um, uh, so another, another idea is sacred history is theology. So the way it's written comes with a theological uh, understanding of world history. And some examples of that are in uh, what's called rewritten Bible. So can someone open their Bibles to 2 Samuel 24 and someone open their Bibles to 1 Corinthians, Chronicles 21? Who's got, uh, who's got uh, 2 Samuel 24? You have? So 2, 2 Samuel 24, read the first. Ah, four or five verses or something. Okay. Again, the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he moved David against them to say, Go, number Israel and Judah. So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army, who was with him, Now go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and count the people, that I may know the number of the people. And Joab said to the king, Now may the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times more than there are, and may the eyes of my lord the king see it. But why does my lord the king desire this thing? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab and against the captains of the army. Therefore, Joab and the captains of the army went out from the presence of the king to account the people of Israel. Awesome. All right. So that's that's the uh, the story of David deciding to number his his people, which he has been specifically told in the Bible not to do. Right? Don't count your your people is a command from the Lord. And so Joab, was, his nephew, is right when he says, you know, you really shouldn't be doing this, boss. But you're the king, so I'll do it anyway. But he does at least put his opposition in court. So that is in 2 Samuel. And, uh, and then in Chronicles, which is uh, written uh, about 400 years later, okay, which is a, uh, uh, a book that we write when we're coming back in from exile. And uh, we decide to rewrite Samuel and Kings, and we begin to have a look at our history, and we say, there's a bit of theology thrown in here, we go, hmm, there's parts of this I actually don't like. For example, King David has an affair with Bathsheba in Samuel. He does not in Chronicles. In fact, Chronicles doesn't actually tell you how you get Solomon. He just kind of skips the whole idea. He just sort of shows up, it's like, cool! I've got a son. I think I'll make him king. <laughs> okay, um, they, what they do is, they, it's not that they're ignoring what he did, but they're making a theological statement. Okay, and so, but have a look at the other piece of theology when we read 1 Chronicles 21. Who would like to read the first five verses of that? Okay. Then Satan stood up against Israel and incited David to count Israel. So David told Joab and the leaders of the people, Go count Israel from Beersheba to Dan. Then bring me a report so I may know their number. 
But Joab said, May Adonai multiply his people a hundred times over. But my master the king, are they not all my master's servants? Why does my master require this thing? Why should he be a cause of guilt to Israel? Nevertheless, the king's word prevailed against Joab. So Joab departed it and went throughout all Israel and finally came back to Jerusalem. Joab gave the number of the census of the people to David. In all Israel there were one, one million, a hundred thousand sword-wielding men. Judah had 470,000 sword-wielding men. Awesome. That's a big chunk. That's a big army. Back then. Israel doesn't even have that many men right now, actually. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> yeah. And you notice that all the numbers in, uh, in, in the Bible all end in zero. Um, incredibly even uh, when they number the people. Um, so what's the difference between Samuel and Chronicles? Satan got blamed in Chronicles. Correct. So for 400 years prior to Chronicles, who would you have assumed asked David to number the people? God. Because that's what the text says. Yes. Right? Now, 400 years later, someone comes along and goes, hang on a second. God doesn't do such a thing. So we have a piece of theology in the text. Someone saying, no, that's not quite right. The bad guy is Satan. And so he will be cast the blame. Now notice these two books are in the Jewish Bible. Notice Jewish rabbis never have a problem with this. It only comes in, 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 in particularly certain streams of Protestant denominations have a real problem with this. We're the ones that go, hang on a second, there's, there's got to be an explanation. Jewish people aren't looking for an explanation. Right? They're just very happy to say, who's in control? God. Who's running around? Who's your enemy? Satan. They're very happy to live with that. Yeah. And they're very... Does, does that kind of help people? Does it kind of help uh, give a cl uh, an understanding of what sacred history can have in terms of a theological bias? This is going to help, I think, when we get to some issues in Acts, where Paul has got... Uh, Luke has got some real particular things he needs to say. And, uh, uh, and so history is also wrapped up in theology. And that's good to know too. Okay? That doesn't stop Jesus from being the Messiah. Doesn't stop him rising from the dead. Doesn't stop God being in control. It just means we just are, are admit, uh, acknowledging that the book of Acts is the sacred history of how the Holy Spirit gets the gospel to run, among other things. All right. Okay. Textual manuscripts. So, anyone know, roughly, which, which uh, texts, which Greek texts, our Bible is being translated from? Anyone have a, an idea? Sir? Septuagint for um, Greek uh, Bible, yeah, Old Testament. Majority of our of our Bibles use a, a stream of manuscripts called Byzantine texts, okay? but not all of them. Okay, newer versions like the ESV have, have have gone back to using Alexandrian texts, 
Has anyone heard of these terms? Alexandrian text, Byzantine text, Western text. Anyone heard of these, uh, these terms? <coughs> okay, you've heard them? Yeah. Okay. So do you know what, can you explain them to uh, lay people? No, I could not. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> fair enough. Anyone want to have a go? I asked you to explain what the differences are uh, okay. and why we continue to wrestle. Okay. Where the origins came from. So, so we, we have to admit that none of us actually have an original. Right? We, no, no one has the original letter that Paul wrote Romans. Okay? It just doesn't exist. Okay? It'd be nice if we could find one. We do not. And, uh, and so when we do archaeology, we actually dig stuff out of the ground. Funny thing about the Bibles, they don't look like this. Right? They're not bound in leather and they're not with some really nice charts and maps and comments down the bottom. Some of them do have comments actually all over the page. But they, and they're not whole. Sometimes you only find bits. Like you'll find Acts chapter 1 to 3 and that's all. And you think, where'd the rest of it go? Well, it was destroyed. It got lost or it got burnt or something. And so you, you have to play a game as you take all these manuscripts that you find and people put them together. It's an incredible science that these guys do as they work them out. And as people were copying from one document to another, they didn't copy it exactly. We would like to think that they did. We would like to hope that they did. But the truth is they did not. And so you end up with groupings of documents that are the same. So one group of doc documents is called Western. I do not know why they call it that. These are very early documents from the 3rd to the 6th century. They are predominantly used by, yes, now we do know, by Tertullian, Irenaeus, and the guys in Morocco and Carthage. So they tend to be quoting Western manuscripts. Western New Testament means that as people were copying the New Testament, they felt very free to change the word order around. They felt very free to add their own explanations. They felt very free to add some extra adjectives. And so you end up having that in some cases, Western texts are just bigger. For example, uh, Western, where's my notes here? Western Acts is 6% bigger than Alexandrian Acts. But it's the reverse when you get to Luke. Alexandrian texts are 8% bigger than Western texts. And there doesn't seem to be an explanation. So they just group them together. And then Bible translators, when they come down, they actually have to make a choice. Which version of Greek will I translate from? And, uh, and so, but they all tell you this at the beginning of your introduction to your Bible, which no one ever reads. Right? You know that first four or five pages that you read as a kid during church when the sermons are really boring? Right? That's, that's one. And so uh, our book of Acts has a tendency to follow Alexandrian texts, even though there are Western versions. And uh, what is that, why does that become important is when you, we get into the we passages of, of uh, where Luke actually joins Paul. In Western Bible, he joins earlier. He joins in Acts 11, but in our version, he will join in Acts 16. Okay, so that's 
where some of those differences play out. Okay? Right. Do they change the fact that Jesus rose from the dead? No. Do they change any of the teaching? No. Do they just add some extra stuff? Yes. Right. Uh, and, in, and in no way should that cause anyone to be alarmed because your faith is it's in the risen Messiah. Okay? So even if they took all the Western Bibles or Alexandrian Bibles, it would make no difference. Jesus is still uh, the Messiah. Aaron, a quick question. The textus receptus, the received text, the received is text. that the um, Alexandrian law, is, is it a particular stream that you're describing? Textus receptus is predominantly, predominantly Byzantine, mm -hmm. and, and Masoretic is predominantly Alexandrian. Okay, so King James was built on Textus receptus, I think. Uh, is, that, is that true? Or the other one? I can't remember. Ah, uh, if it's the Vulgate, then it's the first one. And so Latin versions were then built on the critical Greek of Textus receptus, and then people then switched. It's, just, it's amazing. I've actually seen scholars in this country adamantly tell us we should all be reading Byzantine Bible for years. And then two, three years later, they go, or just to go, after like 10 years telling me that you've got to read Byzantine, they turn around and go, oh, actually, Alexandria is really quite good now. I changed my mind. Okay? And, and without telling me why. But anyway, that's, the, that's where our source material will come from. And every now and again, as we go through study, I'll just happen to say, by the way, the Byzantine version, uh, the, the Western version says this, or it adds this piece of information. And we can decide what we want to do with that. Sometimes, some parts of our Bibles actually put footnotes in it. Actually, put it down in a footnote. They'll say majority texts say this, but we're actually going to translate it this way because we found two manuscripts that we really like, and that's the way we we're going to go. Okay. I have an example. Yep. When Paul is preaching in Ephesus for two years, uh, he rents a hall called the Hall of Terence. Yep. And the expanded texts say between eleven and four o'clock. In other words, when everybody else is having a snooze, having an extended siesta, Paul day in, day out, six days a week, is teaching in the, in the Hall of Terranus for two years. Yep. So somebody... It's a, it's a good detail. It is. So somebody who's <laughs> actually got a copy of Acts, who happened to be in that area and remembered the actual time, shoved it in there. Hmm. And then over history, that got preserved. An archaeologist dug it up and went, oh my gosh, this is, this is actually a little different to that one. But And they uh, didn't know what to do with it. So they pushed it to one side. Sometimes they added it as footnotes. And I really like it when they do. So if you happen to find a Bible that does that, yeah, I recommend you keep those ones because they, they really help. They add, I think, some information. All right. All right. So who actually wrote the book of Acts? How do we know that? Not actually in the book. Right? It doesn't say it in... Luke, and it doesn't say it in, in Acts. Actually, it doesn't say the, the author. It, uh, it's, it's, a, it's, it's one of those traditions that uh, comes through the church fathers, which we are very early, but we take it. Okay? Um, like, most of the books never come with a, a name attached. Like, uh, some do, like, I, Paul, write this. That helped. Or I, John. That's always really good. But uh, many of the manuscripts never had names. And we had to uh, 
uh, figure it out ourselves. So how can you figure that out then? How come Luke's name's got attached to it? Uh, that's a good question. It's from the second century AD. Is it Irenaeus? It's, I, um, actually the very, very first mention no, it's actually the opposition, the Marcionites. Oh, really? Yes, actually the very first people who actually give, give credence to Luke writing Luke Acts is actually the, the, other, the other church. At the beginning of the church history, we had the, the church, the believers, and then you had this other group of people who become known as the Marcionites, uh, who believed a uh, lot of a lot of uh, paganism and Hellenism thrown in there, that um, the God of the Old Testament was not the God of the New Testament. They were two different gods, and, uh, and um, the, first, the one of the Bible is just evil and nasty and full of judgment, but the one of the New Testament is full of love and grace and mercy. They're just two different people. So their Bible was very small. And, uh, and, it's, and they write in a document in the year 170, where they actually mention the author being Luke. Mm -hmm. All right. Okay. So, who is Luke? He's a doctor. Why do we think he's a doctor? I think it says somewhere. It does. It does. Okay. There's one verse which talks about a person called Luke who's a doctor. A beloved physician. Correct. And that's what we base it on. We have no proof <coughs> that that Luke is our Luke. It, it could be. a very strong possibility that it is. But it's based on one sentence. There is no other document anywhere. Everybody else has, repeats the line that Luke is a doctor. All based on Colossians 4. Which is excellent. And, and it, I'm going to admit, he most likely is that person. But let's all just be honest, it, could, it also might not be. Because right? uh, sometimes the early church believed that the guy called uh, Lucius of Cyrene, or was, which is mentioned in Acts 13, is the Luke that ends up writing Luke-Acts. But we'll get to that when we, when we arrive. Okay, um, actually it might be a good idea to turn to Colossians uh, and then read that section and, uh, and then see what sort of information comes out. Do you remember which exact verses they are? So look, the yeah. Colossians 4. Where we read, well, verse 14, but it's 10 to 14. 10 to 14. So anyone want to read Colossians 4, 10 to 14? My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may send him, stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. 
I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. <laughs> Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. Okay, questions, Ted? The later one, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, not the early one. Yeah, what is yours? Play? You're the circumcision. Yeah, the circumcision party. Yeah, circumcision party. Okay. But you know, the, this is the ESV. It says, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers. Yes. So the same word that you find in Galatians, where it talks about Jews from Jerusalem of the circumcision. Um, <coughs> yeah. um, but Paul is also what, Jewish? but he doesn't identify himself as that group of people. So from that reading, one would assume that Luke is a Gentile. And that happens to be the, the predominant main view um, in, in Catholic and, and um, Protestant circles. The, the tradition is that uh, Luke is a doctor and he's a Gentile because he's separated from the Jews. Right. Uh, Paul says, you know, these are, these are my only fellow members of the circumcision. And then he lists another bunch of names, which people can assume are then not of the circumcision, indicating that they might be Gentiles. And, uh, and therefore it's Luke. And all the Gentiles go, hooray, we finally got an author in the New Testament who wasn't actually Jewish. Okay. The only one. Um, however, the, that position is challenged by uh, the Greeks. Greek Orthodox, and the Church Fathers Epiphanius, who mention that he's actually a Hellenized Jew from Antioch, and is one of the 70 apostles. So in the Orthodox Church, that is our brothers right next door, and all around us, they actually believe that he is Jewish, that he has been with Jesus for quite some time, and uh, he's a Hellenized Jew, like Paul is a Hellenized Jew and can uh, speak Hebrew, Greek, Aramaic, it's very smart, uh, and also has a profession, being a healer, uh, as well as a, as a, uh, of ends up being an evangelist. Luke has access to material nobody else does. He has access to Mary that none of the other um, gospel writers do. Only the birth narratives are in Luke. Like the, the temple stories, the baby stories, the angelic vision uh, to Mary uh, occurs, occurs with him. Um, and so whatever, whether he's Jewish or Gentile, he has unique access to the inner community. Somehow, they're talking to him. He has access to their material. Nobody else does. Um, for whatever that is. As we go through the text, when it comes down to... Uh, studying some of the texts, I'm going to bring in lots of Jewish Midrash and hopefully show you or argue my case that uh, I'm going to side with the Greek Orthodox on this one, that, that Luke knows a lot, so much Jewish Midrash, I would question how a Gentile could know it. Um, the way he uses, especially in Acts 2, is, a, is, a, is an incredible piece of Jewish Midrash. But anyway, those are things we can talk about in a minute. Um, 
the next part of the, 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 the thing is going to, my, my companion is going to get up. It's why write it? Why write Acts? If you wanted to do a history of the church, would you not like to include north, south, uh, and west? Or sorry, east. But instead, we focus on our sacred history as the gospel goes west. Is there a reason why it only wants to focus on that? And um, Neville's actually got some interesting ideas. Um, so, okay, thank you. Can I just squeeze a Bible in here? Actually, I think um, let's refer to also the uh, two other occasions where Luke is mentioned in the New Testament. One is in the letter of Philemon, that very short one, uh, only one chapter, and he's um, mentioned there in verse 23. This was written in about AD 62 when Paul was under house arrest in Rome. So we're talking then about at the end of the story of Acts, that's Philemon. And the third mention of um, Luke in the New Testament, and I'd like somebody to just turn this up, is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 to 11. I think I'd rather add you referred to 2 Timothy and 2 Timothy, and we have a illustrious person in the United States who was castigated for using terminology such as that of 2 Timothy uh, reference or a 1 Chronicles. His name is Donald Trump. <laughs> and so I find that rather interesting that uh, a couple of knowledgeable guys like you use that and uh, he was thrown under the bus for that in the U.S. So I'm sure they'll throw us under the bus too. Yeah, well. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay, so someone has got this reference for me. Um, the uh, 2 Timothy 4, verses 9 to 11. <coughs> yeah, okay, thank you. Do all you, can, do all you can to come to me quickly, for Demas, having loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Christians has gone to Galatia and Jesus to Dominica. Luke is the only one with me, yet Mark can bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Okay, thank you. Now this, uh, most people would agree, is Paul is also in prison here in the context of this letter to 2 Timothy. Uh, to 2 Timothy. But it's a later imprisonment. It's a really bad scene, and he, he anticipates that his life is near an end. And Luke is with him. Um, and he, it's a very touching thing that he's the only guy who's stuck with him. Others are out on business. One guy's kind of jump ship, but Luke is there. Um, you, reading between the lines, you get a sense that he's really grateful that Luke is there with him. He's really appreciating it. Um, and a feeling of a, a real bond of friendship there. And uh, in other words, Luke, who clearly understands the same as Paul understands that this is, could, could be the end of the line in a very short time. He doesn't want to leave his friend. Okay, um, so that's, I just wanted you to be aware of those three references in the New Testament to Luke. Um, and uh, I'll pick up on one or two things that um, Aaron has said as well. But primarily you understand Luke as a traveling companion of Paul. Um, now, this is where I've, I've got these uh, maps, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> And I'm going to make references. So uh, this is two pages of maps, and they're intended for use 
over this series of talks. So um, one between two, maybe, um, and pass them down. Um, and I shall uh, briefly refer to this, and then um, we'll gather them up at the end and reuse them in the, in the coming weeks. Uh, if you're curious, these these maps come from my study Bible. Uh, this is not from good. Me. I can't see it anyway. So. <laughs> Um, and I, I, I like maps as someone, as the, the rumour. Okay, pass these around. And um, uh, the. Okay, well, you don't have Paul's fourth one, right? Eh? No, another one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, just, I'm just working that out. Yeah. As we get closer towards the end, we're going to pay you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, these, these are very, these are great maps. Apart from, like a whole bunch of theologians and, and archaeologists refer to the generic area with the anachronistic name of Palestine. But when you focus in a bit closer, they actually managed to use Galilee, Samaria, and Judea. My question to these guys is: When Rome captured, or Rome conquered? this part of the world. They minted coins which had written on them, Palestinia capta. Did they? No. No, no they had Judea capta written on them. And that wasn't, they weren't just capturing Judea, they were capturing the whole land. But the, the coins were minted with Judea capta. Maybe the theologians will catch up one day. Maybe they think Israel's too political. Mm. Everyone knows what an anachronism is? Yes. yes. Yeah. So the Palestine dates from the second century AD, and it appears nowhere in the Bible. It is, cannot be used for anything that refers to Bible times, if you want to be historically accurate. Yeah. Hebrew Bible has some anachronisms in, okay, as does uh, the the New Testament. Okay. Um, so, for example, the the term Sea of Galilee only occurs. In the Gospels, except Luke. Except Luke does not Luke. refer to it as the Sea of Galilee. Correct. So, because everybody else who was here, all Jewish literature, what they call it. They call it all kinds of names. They call it the Lake of the Kinneret. They call it the uh, the Lake of Ginosar. They uh, call it all kinds of different things, or the Lake of the Galilee. They never call it the Sea of Galilee. It only occurs in um, the, the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, because they're making a theological point. Mm -hmm. But Luke, who I, I argue was here, and he knew what it was supposed to be called, actually calls it by its real, real term. He calls it a lake, not a sea. He does. He, calls, he's the, he's the, he, he uses the real Greek word for it, limne, whereas everybody else uses it, calls it a thalassar, which it is not. Right? Only, only Luke, which gives us a good indication that Luke was actually here. Yeah. Wait, could you repeat that word? Anachronism. Anachronism. Okay, it's chronism with an A on the beginning. <laughs> okay. so, something, and so to use that term that he was here, does that mean when we put the other three up against it that they weren't here? Okay, well first of all, who wrote Matthew? Matthew. Oh, doesn't say. Okay, so no one really knows who wrote Matthew. Um, but, they did, but whoever it is is definitely Jewish because they're making a Jewish midrash, which is what the Sea of Galilee is. Right? It comes from Isaiah 9. 
where it talks about Derech uh, Liyam, the way to the sea, and the Galila Goyim, the Galilee of the Gentiles. It doesn't say Yam Galil, the Sea of Galilee. It says two different things. But what, what the, uh, in, Jew, in Jewish tradition, if you want to talk about where was Jesus doing it, he was doing it in Yam Galil. And anyone who's Hebrew hears that goes, oh, you're talking about the prophecy in Isaiah 9 about the nation seeing a great light in the north. Yeah. That's, that's what you do. That, yeah. Does that understand? Help? help? Yeah. So the gospel writers are doing it. But Luke doesn't feel like he needs to. He actually just calls it by what it really is. Yeah. And most people think it's actually a Christian invention. This, it's called a toponym, a name for a place right. that the Christian subculture decided to yeah. hook onto. And it comes in the Gospels. But only, only Jewish Christianity. Someone has to know Hebrew to do it. It won't work in Greek. Yeah. Okay. Uh, classic anachronisms that are in the Hebrew Bible. After Abraham makes a deal with Abimelech, it says he left and he went up to the land of the Philistines. No, he didn't, because there weren't any Philistines in the time of Abraham. So it's an anachronism. It means that somebody else who's taking the document forward goes, where's he going to again? Oh, that land. Oh, it's crawling with Philistines. That's right. Land of the Philistines. Yeah. So it happens. Yeah, and there's another one with Abraham where he chases down a bunch of kings up to Dan. Uh, and Dan hadn't been born. Had kind of been born yet. <laughs> so it, the place was, so someone later on, hundreds of years later, has replaced the name of Laish, or whatever it was called, yeah. with the name Dan. And that's trying to be helpful. And those are kind of obvious, and it doesn't, no one gets upset by them. No one gets upset by them. So they do the Unlike this one here. <laughs> Okay, moving on. Um, okay, I was referring to the, uh, what, the we passages, in other words, the things written in the first person, or the plural, um, by Luke. They start, as um, Aaron said, in chapter 16. So turn the, pages, the map pages over to the second page, and uh, I'll quickly uh, read for you the the verse so you don't have to flick to it. So we're looking here at the Paul's second missionary journey. And that's where? Okay. Um, what's the book? Oh, I'm going to quote from Acts chapter 16. Um, and I'm going to read from 6, verse 6 through to uh, verse 10. And in on the map, we're, in the, in his, we're actually at Troas, or this red line skirting around what they call Asia, heading towards Troas. That's where on the map this, the context of this reading is. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. So can you see Asia on the map there? And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now, that Benathenia, can you see that to the north there? So, passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. See that? That's the first time in Arth that the word we comes there. So the inference is that they have hooked up with Luke in Troas, and he's joining them 
on that sea journey over to Neapolis and Philippi. And the use of we and us continues for a couple of pages up towards the end of chapter 16. Okay, so that, but actually really in terms of the map, that's just that sea journey and then the episodes in Philippi, like Paul and Silas being thrown into prison, those sort of things, and the Philippian jailer being converted. So those, and, and we think that Luke's around for those events. But then the narrative changes and, and it turns into they went and did something. Mm. It leads a strong belief that actually Luke was with Paul, mm -hmm. the travelling companion, because you don't find the term we in the Gospels. Yeah. Right? When the Gospel writers write, they'll say Jesus went up a mountain with his disciples. Right? They came back down. A crowd gathered around them. There's never a the crowd gathered around us. We distributed bread at the command of our Lord. The only time you get a we passage in the Gospels is in John 1, where John says, we beheld his glory. And then after that, it's back into him, him, them, them. Yes. There's a case made for Mark's Gospel that it was uh, the eyewitness account of Peter, and that he would have said, I and the other disciples did this. But then the suspicion is that Mark, mm -hmm. his sidekick, replaced I with Peter and wrote it in, in that way. So we, you don't get that first-person thing happening in Mark, even though it's, a first, it's an eyewitness account. So that, that's one passage where he's, um, um, Luke's joining. Then there's a much longer section, um, uh, uh, starting at Acts chapter 20, from verse 5. Now, turn your maps over, and we're now talking about um, Paul's third missionary journey. And so this is um, chapter 20, verse 5, to 21, verse 17. Um, and I'll read just a couple of verses here. We've got a pretty big list of names. Oh, that's fun, isn't it? You, you love it when you're reading the Bible and you think, okay. So um, this is on the return leg of the third journey. So um, coming back through Macedonia and... He, he does actually the reverse of what we were just talking about. He goes from Philippi to Troas. And so I'll read a couple of verses here. I'll start reading at verse 4. Serpater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi, after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days he came to Demetros, where we stayed for seven days. So they, he meets up with Paul at Philippi, and there's some guys that went on ahead, and they then met them up in Troas. And Paul stays with him um, for the rest of the journey, and it, it's kind of covered fairly quickly. Sorry, sorry. Luke stays with Paul for the remainder of that third missionary journey and you can see he goes across south of Cyprus and then through Tyre, Ptolemais, Caesarea and Jerusalem. Ptolemais, by the way, is Akko, for those who are not quite so clear. Um, what the text is kind of saying, what I think it's saying, it's just in my opinion, is that um, they send the Gentiles on ahead because it's a Jewish religious festival and the Jews remain, which includes Luke. And, and the final passage, uh, okay, turn over to the, um, 
the last page, which is entitled Paul's Journey to Rome. And uh, <coughs> suffice to say that this occurs in the latter quarter of the book of Acts, and Luke is there all the way, from, from the whole of the journey, from Caesarea, can you see there, all the way across, and there's a shipwreck, and right up to Rome, and Luke is there all the way. Uh, so, this, so there you are, that's a quick rundown of Luke, the traveling companion. Um, I'll skip over these things. There's, there's some interesting hints about his, um, um, the medical aspect of his take on life. In other words, he references things that other people don't. Uh, for example, I'll give you two examples. One is uh, Peter, his mother-in-law was sick in Capernaum and it's only Luke that says she had a high fever. Mm. The others say he had a fever. And then on, when they land on Malta after the shipwreck and he, he's introduced to the, the big white chief in Malta called Pubilis and his father is in bed sick with a fever and dysentery. Now, these are pretty technical terms for the run-of-the-mill guy who doesn't know much about medicine. So these instances are, are taken as kind of evidence that Paul knew, or at least the author knew what he was talking about in terms of diseases. Uh, that Luke knew what he was talking about, sorry. Um, okay, now, what I really want to go and say is that there are some odd things about the book of Acts, and I'm going to list three in particular. Okay, firstly, there's the abrupt ending. Would you agree that kind of ends with a cliffhanger? Yes. And the last verse of chapter 28 says that, well, actually, it's possibly added on later, some manuscripts don't have it, but that he... Uh, lived in a house under, at his own expense and entertained people at his own will and it was uh, not too bad at the time. And um, maybe it's as if the person who is being, he was writing it for, which is Theophilus, kind of knew the facts anyway. He didn't need to go into the detail. Anyway, but we have this thing, this abrupt end. Now, if someone was writing a history of the church, you think... We would really like to know what happened in that trial. That's kind of interesting, but it does, it's not there. Although the early church father says that he was acquitted and then he went on a further journey. And that seems entirely reasonable. And there's a decent amount of supporting evidence from the other, some of the New Testament epistles, particularly um, uh, Timothy and Titus. So, odd thing number two. The focus is on Paul from chapter 13 onwards. Now, Peter is at the centre of things for the first few chapters, and then later on in chapter 10, to do with Cornelius, chapter 12, to do with the miraculous release from prison, and chapter 15, to do with the Jerusalem Council. Um, you're picking up the, you mean roughly what I'm referring to? So these, these feature Peter, but actually, from then on, he doesn't appear at all because the focus is all on Paul. Now, a variety of people in, appear in the first quarter of Acts, the first 12 chapters, including non-apostles, notably Stephen and Philip. Let's hear it for the deacons. The deacons. <laughs> but not even Peter, the leader of the church, is mentioned after Acts, 15, uh, Acts chapter 15. Okay, so that's... This kind of focus on Paul 
once the church has got established and once there's been certain key stories, it seems a bit odd if you're trying to inform people about church history. So what I'm, I'm going to try and present to you a possible scenario. Now, I don't mind if you disagree with me, but explains what comes up with a good explanation for these oddities in the, the content and the, and the way that uh, Acts is written, the things it includes and the things it doesn't include. Okay, the third really odd thing about Acts is the story really fills out in terms of details in the latter chapters, chapters 21 to 28. So I'm talking about that's the last quarter of Acts. Now, I rather suspect that when you've kind of heard stories or um, sermons in church on Acts, most of them will be from the first three quarters, you know, from what happened in Jerusalem and the things that Peter did and the amazing things that, that happened. Not so much about these things to do with court appearances and the shipwreck and what happened in, on the way. You know. uh, but that's actually a quarter of it. And some of the detail included in there seems a bit odd. It doesn't seem to have a massive bearing on evangelism or church planting. I mean, Acts 27 is about the dangers and misfortunes of travel rather than evangelism and ministry. So we have these, do you agree, we've got these kind of three slightly odd aspects of the makeup and the content of Acts. Um, there are other not so obvious um, oddities about it. So for example, I'll give you three of these slightly less high profile oddities. Paul's testimony, in other words, his encounter with the risen Jesus appears three times. Once in Acts 9, which is in context. Once in Acts 22, at the temple, and once in Acts 20, 26. So he gets to say his, he present his testimony three times in detail. Why? I mean, I personally would have been quite happy to have the testimonies of one or two other guys in there, particularly maybe James, the brother of Jesus. I wanted to know how he ended up being in charge of the Jerusalem church. That great testimony, I'd like to hear it. It's not there. Um, Odd thing number two, there are two martyrdoms recorded in Acts. Do we know what they are? Counts of people being Stephen and the second one, James. Stephen gets a whole chapter, chapter seven, and James gets a couple of verses. James was an apostle, Stephen was a deacon. No. Deacon! <laughs> um, so we have, we have two martyrdoms, now, why, take a guess, maybe, why you think one might be mu addressed in much more detail than the other one. Okay, that's a good reason. He was, as we understand it, the first martyr. And that, that is significant. James was an apostle. But James was uh, brother. He was James, the brother of John, we're talking about, yeah. Not, not the brother of Jesus, it's no. the other one, James, yeah, the, James the, John. Son. the sons of thunder, those, those guys. Zebedee, yes. It's very important what he was telling and what happened later. Yes, it is important, and it's important because of its connection with Paul. Mm -hmm. yes. 
he pictures up right at the end of mm -hmm. chapter 7 and verse 8 starts with and Paul was approving of what was going on yes. on that in the master okay um, so my suggestion is that that's one of these key things that this martyrdom is in detail because of the connection with Paul okay third uh, little observation Paul suffered at least four shipwrecks and only one of them is recorded in Acts. How do, I, do, you, do you know how um, I know that he suffered at least four shipwrecks? Because he said so when he says, I've been beaten and hit with rods and etc. etc. and shipwrecked four times. Three times. Three times. So I'm adding in the one at the end. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, and then on his fourth uh, missionary journey that... Um, I think happened, there may well have been mishaps. But it isn't at odd that none of the, those shipwrecks are recorded, even hinted at, in the Acts of the Apostles. So, let me... Neville, is it possible that the Book of Acts could have been written by more than one person, since it's I here and we there, but it was a um, combination? No, it's a mixture of they, they and we. Yeah. Um, okay. okay. You know how the book of Luke starts? Um, maybe I'll... So I think as, as we're finding Luke, this, what Neville's doing is he's beginning to answer one of those questions, like what is the book of Acts actually about? Jesus had a lot of disciples, but church history actually is quite silent. Our recorded church history of the Bible is not interested in it. It is interested very heavily on Paul. So why? And there's some good, good reasons, I think. Okay. So I'm going to read the first uh, four verses of Luke's Gospel. This is a, w I'm told, I don't read Greek. This is a wonderful piece of Greek, wonderfully constructed, and demonstrates that he had a, a remarkable command of the language. In fact, Luke's use of Greek and the person who wrote Hebrews, that's the best Greek in the book. Anyway, he says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. It's one sentence. Um, but the point I want to make is there that Luke's wants to seek out eyewitnesses. Mm -hmm. And he has the mindset, he has a Hellenistic mindset of wanting to set things in order. Now, some would say that means he's a Greek. He's a Gentile. No, it doesn't. It just means he's a Greek thinking person. Paul was a Greek thinking person. Yeah. Um, so, but he has this desire to seek out and to make sure that he gets an accurate uh, and reasonably sequential as far as you could. Now, in some ways, that's kind of tricky with the, um, uh, the, the gospel, but he, he does a good job of doing a sequential account in Acts because the way he thinks, that's how you want it. That's, that, that's a good way to do it. Um, now, what I'm going to say is that there's one way of understanding this, which... It's not my idea, but I relate to it because I find it, it manages to explain these big oddities and the medium-sized oddities, which I've just mentioned, and a whole bunch of little ones as well. And that is that Acts was written by Luke 
to Theophilus to act as the defense briefing paper for Paul's trial in Rome that happens off the end of Acts chapter 28. So he appears to know Theophilus sort of a little bit. He calls him most excellent Theophilus. Um, then he, in the beginning of um, Acts, he refers to him as just as Theophilus. He's a bit more chummy there. Um, now the, the phrase, okay, I'm, I'm gonna maybe explain why this might, some pointers to support my argument. The phrase most excellent, what is that film they use? Oh no. Um, is used in other places in the Acts, but it's only used for two other people. The governors of Judea. One was called Felix and the other was called Festus. And Paul stood before them and that was his preliminary trials in Caesarea before these two people. And they are both addressed as most excellent Festus and most excellent Felix. Um, and so not only is a title of respect for authority, it may have been a slightly technical term applied to those who had responsibility in a courtroom. Now, that's, that's a possibility. That's not a, it's not a really persuasive argument, but it's, it's worth noting that that phrase only occurs in that context. Um, and the, the reason why, um, obviously, you get that odd ending to it in chapter 28 is that that's, the document was then handed over to Theophilus, and he used it in, the, um, in Paul's trial, which we think he, in which he is acquitted. But I suspect that in that two years while Paul was under house arrest, that, and that he was finishing off the production of this work, Acts, that other people looked at it and said, gosh, I really like a copy of that. That is really interesting. And so um, one or other people may have been busy making copies of the book of Acts. And it is, as you pointed out, actually the book in the New Testament that has the most variation in terms of versions of Greek. It means it was copied by lots of people, some of them who didn't know Greek very well. <laughs> so, and then my, the second odd point about is the way um, from Acts chapter 7 onwards, almost everything has to do with Paul. But that would make sense. If you're writing a briefing document for the defense attorney, you don't want to include extraneous stuff about why James became the leader of the Jerusalem church. But what is the one interesting thing is, how come this new religion jumped from Judaism to, to uh, being attracted to the Gentiles? And so maybe that's one reason why we have that story of Peter and Cornelius, that Peter, being the key holder, unlocks the door to the Gentiles in connection with his trip to Caesarea to speak to, to Cornelius and his household. That would have then demonstrates that this jump to the Gentiles was not Paul's initiative, it was Peter's initiative. In fact, it was the Holy Spirit's initiative. Um, now, the last quarter of Acts, so this is, I'm talking about from middle of chapter 21 right to the end, gives the background and details of his arrest. And now these are the things that would have been of interest to Paul's defense counsel, and they would include the circumstances that caused Paul to be held in protective custody, 
the details of the various accusations against him, and I, th I might even read one of them. It even includes the really slippery, slimy, nasty testimony of the guy called Tertullus. And I think I'll read it because it's quite entertaining. <laughs> of, um, yeah. And then, um, all in information on the proceedings of his preliminary hearings that I've already mentioned. So he had a preliminary hearing in front of Governor Felix, and he had a preliminary hearing in front of Governor Festus, and also involving King Agrippa. Key information to inform your defence counsel of, to know exactly what was said and what the conclusions of those sessions were. And finally, it is really important to know how Paul conducts himself as a prisoner of the Roman Empire. This is important information for the Defence Council. And I think we will say that Paul is an exemplary prisoner and he's a natural leader. So I don't know how well you know off the top of your head the story of the shipwreck. You know, he doesn't try and escape and he, he tells the captain of the ship what to do in terms of when to throw stuff overboard and stop people trying to cut and run. He said, only if everybody stays on the boat will we all be saved. The boat will be lost, but no lives will be. So, and the captain of the ship follows that advice, and that comes true. He, he nowhere make, tries to make a run for it. He, and more than that, he in, basically has a healing ministry on the island of Malta. He's there for three months, and great things happen. And they get packed up on another boat, and they're cheering him and giving him supplies. And, you know, they're really glad that Paul visited Malta for three months and, and shared the gospel with them. Um, but this is interesting information when, as a character reference to, the, to your prisoner that you're representing in court, how he conducted himself. Now, when did Luke write the gospel in Acts? Well, I think the most exp likely explanation is that he wrote his gospel when Paul was in prison in Caesarea. Now, we are told clearly that Paul was in Caesarea for two years, and then another two years after the travel trip to Rome, he was in prison there. And we also know that Luke was in and around Paul uh, at that time. He was in the land. We, don't, um, we can be sure about that. We're not quite so sure whether he was in um, uh, the land of Israel earlier on, that is alluded to by uh, other traditions. So I think the most likely explanation is that Luke took the opportunity while he was there in the end to go and seek out these eyewitnesses and put together the information for his gospel. And he doubtless had an interview with Mary, the mother of Jesus. And I think perhaps, and people point this out, that Luke had a skill in being able to interview people and make notes and represent the story accurately. And maybe that reflected his skill, his, his uh, skill as a physician taking stories and because uh, medicine had by that time about a 400 year history amongst the Greeks and particularly the, the, um, the tradition of um, uh, the Hippocrat Hippocrates, isn't it? Yeah, that, yeah. that focuses on sickness as being important for the individual and not just for the, an issue for the state. Um, so the, and Hippocrates established the foundations of the nature of care and 
Luca's in this tradition that had been established 400 years before. Anyway, so he, he appears to be able to take notes and uh, record what people are saying, and he probably had access to written documents as well as oral histories. Okay. Um, there's a couple of, okay, some minor little details. Uh, in the two most important trials up to that point, um, well, okay, Paul talks about, um, sorry, Luke talks about the um, Paul's trials, but also in his gospel he talks about <coughs> Jesus' trial. And we notice that Jesus is declared as innocent by the centurion who was, um, ha had the job of overseeing the crucifixion. And the same is true, and Luke records this, that the governor Festus and King Agrippa and agreed he could be set free. So both in these key trials, we have the declaration, the uh, virtually explicit declaration that both Jesus was innocent and that Paul was innocent and should be set free. The snag was that Paul had already um, appealed to Rome, and I think the rules of the game was that you, that trumped any subsequent idea. Anyway, another point, interesting point is that Luke and Acts says nothing negative about Romans, I mean the people, the, um, the Roman occupying force, and there was all sorts of grounds to do so. I mean, uh, we, we know from Jesus that it was perfectly plausible that someone could slap you on the face and tell you what to do and tell you, carry my bag home for the, the five miles. You know, they could do that kind of thing. Um, but you find in Luke's Gospel, particularly n nothing nasty said about Romans, but actually some positive stories. In, in particular, you have the, um, the, the centurion Cornelius, which I've already mentioned. He's a remarkably good guy. Give, um, and you could see that he is partly responsible just for opening the door to the Gentiles. His acts of kindness and his gifts to the poor meant that the Holy Spirit got hold of Peter and redirected him on a special job to go and speak to Cornelius and his household. And then in the Gospel, Luke says, refers to the centurion who asked Jesus to heal his servant. And Jesus was prepared to go to the centurion's house and make himself richly unclean, richly impure, and have to... And maybe the centurion knew that, and he sent his servant saying, no, no, you don't need to come to my house. You just need to say the word, and my servant will be healed, because I'm a man under authority, and you know how, you know how the story goes. Um, and Jesus says, wow, not even in Israel have I come across faith like this. And we're talking about a Roman centurion. So these are kind of positive take stories on Romans. <coughs> And um, let me tell okay, and the final one, I'm just going to read a verse from Paul's conversion and about Ananias and what was revealed to him. Um, okay, I'm going to read from Acts chapter 9 from verse 10. 
Now there was a disciple at Damascus called Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hand on him so that he might regain his sight. <laughs> that makes me smile. So no pressure then. No. <laughs> but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He, he remembers to put in, or he decides to put in, the word kings there. So that Paul will be a witness before kings. So, and I think when Paul writes this, um, it has either happened or already happened. He has witnessed to King Agrippa. Sorry, Luke. Luke, sorry, yeah. Yep. Um, and he's on his way to Rome, and either, I don't know how it worked, either Nero or Nero's representative, he would also behave in court the same way. In other words, he would, he would give a powerful testimony and witness of his life in that context. And it's, um, it's just picked up as a little detail there. Now, you wouldn't see that, you'd only see that when you're, thinking of this context for the writing of the book of Acts. Oh, that seemed, that's, that's a little curious detail that he should mention, um, but what should be revealed to Ananias, and Luke makes a point of mentioning it, that, Luke will, that, that Paul will stand before kings and witness. All right. Okay. okay, so this is hopefully good background for the rest of the study. Keep your maps just as, a, as an overview. Um, we're looking at a document in our Bibles, which is sacred history. It is sacred because it's in your Bible, and it deals with sacred matters. It's a history of the gospel of how it gets to what goes to Rome. Uh, not concerned about anything else. It's heavily focused on Paul. We're going to, as we go, continue to ask all those questions: why, particularly in the in the scenario of the trial uh, area. Um, there's things in the text that it doesn't include, giving so its its date is a is an early date. He he includes the martyrdom of Stephen and James, but not the martyrdom of James, uh, the brother of Jesus, which occurs in 62. That doesn't include the destruction of the temple. So these are these are sort of markers for people to say that the document was definitely written prior to that, which goes along with the idea of uh, Paul being imprisoned in Caesarea. Heavily focuses. On the, on the Holy Spirit. Hence, as we study the book, we're going to focus on what the Holy Spirit is doing in the early movement as it takes uh, the Gospel West. Uh, and along the way, uh, as we journey and we ask questions of the text, we'll, we'll consult maps, we'll consult some of the other texts. For example, the we passages start in Acts 16 in our version, but then anybody who has a Western Bible, which is going to be the Coptics, Okay, the Ethiopians, their axe is different to ours. It will start in 11. Okay. Uh, this is an example. Okay. So, any questions? Any comments about some of the things we've been talking about? 
Anyone shocked? I'm about to go out and you know, become Buddhists or something. <laughs> I would hope not. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> All right, so next week we start with Acts chapter 1, but we will begin by asking the question first, what do we think the Holy Spirit does? Without looking at the Bible, then we'll write all that down, and then we'll begin our journey through, through, through Acts, paying particular attention, uh, with everything else that's in there, but to the word the Holy Spirit. Okay? The Holy Spirit, I forgot to mention, this is all New Testament references. In the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament, how many times is the Holy Spirit mentioned? Anyone know? Three times. And it is only ever used with a possessive. What do I mean by that? I mean, so in the text, the term Holy Spirit, Ruach Kodesh, is always got a possessive at the end. It's His Holy Spirit. Don't take your Holy Spirit. But there is never the definitive article, which is the word the. The word the Holy Spirit only occurs in Second Temple period Jewish literature. Right? The whole idea that there is the Holy Spirit and what he does uh, occurs then. And so by the time you get to, to the New Testament... We have a very well-developed tradition as to what we think the Holy Spirit does. And so I'll also mention some of that. I'll, I'll, I'll bring, uh, next, next week, I'll bring um, Second Temple period Jewish traditions of the Holy Spirit and the Shekinah and, uh, and, and how they understood him to, to work. Okay. Just a note on the stained glass windows in the church over there. You will see at the top they have the three names of God, the Trinitarian names of God written in Hebrew. Uh, you have the, the four-letter name of the Lord. Then you have Emmanuel, an Old Testament reference to Jesus. And you have a reference to the Holy Spirit, but not Holy Spirit. It is Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, because of the reasons that um, Aaron said. So Ruach Elohim appears from verse 2 of the scriptures and in lots of other places. Thank you for listening. If you've been blessed by this teaching, let us know by leaving a comment on our Facebook page or leaving a review in iTunes. You can offer practical support to Christ Church Jerusalem by clicking the Donate Now button on our Facebook page. Thank you and blessings from the City of the King.